Good morning, and welcome to Millennial Momentum. This is a podcast focused on millennial personal development. This is Tommy Tahoe Alemo. I am on the path. I'm on the journey for a better life. I want more money. I want better relationships. I want to get better at my craft. I want to be healthier. I want to be happier. And I thank you for joining me, and I'm hoping that I can help you on your path as well. And today, we've got a great interview with Jamie Shanks. He is the founder and CEO of Sales for Life. And a funny story about Jamie or about how we kind of got in contact was when I moved to San Francisco a little over two years ago, I was gifted a book from Rich Stone. Shout out Rich Stone, guest number one. Uh, and it was uh, Jamie Shanks's book, Social Selling Mastery. And, you know, I was getting into social and I saw Rich was doing a good job. And uh, I wasn't sure how to use LinkedIn and Twitter and all these social platforms for my benefit. And I, but I knew they were valuable in some way. And I knew I needed to invest some time in those, into those tools. So I read his book. I love what he says about the sphere of influence. And it's really just trying to match the people that you know to who you're trying to sell to or who you're trying to help influence and growing that sphere of influence and uh, using your connections versus just calling someone cold or going into a meeting cold and trying to make that connection with with someone. So he talks about how he used that to, he was 18 months into starting a business, he was about to go bankrupt and he had to use that tactic in order to build his business. And you know, month after month, he started using it and using it and started landing deal after deal after deal. And he tells that story. And he was really close to being on the brink of failure. And you know, six of his seven businesses have failed, but the seventh one took off because of the sphere of influence. So we talk about that. We answer some great questions from the audience. So shout out to five guests of the week this week. Annie Matthews, Ryan Warner, Kevin Garcia, Mike Fraioli, Justin Bartels. Thank you so much for contributing on LinkedIn, asking the questions. I'm going to keep doing that and, and keep getting your uh, getting your inputs out there. So I really hope you enjoy this interview with Jamie. I'm going to take you into it in three, two, one. And you say your why is enabling millions of sales professionals uh, to move from an analog to a digital sales model. And I'd love to hear you expand on that and hear more about you know why you're so passionate about that topic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was um, I was a sales professional that was fairly successful turned entrepreneur who bombed and failed very hard as an entrepreneur. And I've just I've loved the sales community ever since I became a seller and I wanted to give back to the community. And as I've evolved my career, I see this massive gap between the skills of the seller and the requirements of the buyer. And there's an opportunity. I, you know, it's maybe it's because I'm 40 years old. It's time I'm thinking more about a legacy. I want to I want to leave the sales community in a much better shape than I uh, came into it. And I that simple goal is I want to help as many and over a million uh, as many B2B sellers as possible. Help them understand that the play the sales plays that you are running today are from the yesteryear. I mean, they are the 20th century place for most sellers and that you're really going to have to think, uh, be creative uh, and be digital 
to be relevant to the modern uh, the modern buyer. So there's this massive wave, um, and only if you lived in Silicon Valley and you work at a tech company, you might say, "Oh yeah, digital and social, we're already doing this." But you got to remember that the whole rest of the planet and every other industry is nowhere near there yet. And so there's this going to be this generational shift. I I want to put a pin in where you said that you crash and burn as an entrepreneur. I'm curious about that, but just to stick on this topic, why do you think that salespeople have been so reluctant to this change? Is it a lack of knowledge or they're just more stuck in their ways or, or what do you think? You know, actually I've, I've seen a couple of posts lately by Jim Keenan and I think he's hit the nail on the head. I think that the vast majority of sellers don't see this vocation as a career, like how they can hone their skills and their craft, no different than a dentist or a doctor or an accountant, which are like, they see them, those people see themselves as consummate professionals who need to like polish the stone for whatever reason. I think that maybe people become sellers, uh, out of school and they didn't, they, maybe they, it's not like they studied to become sellers. I mean, very few university programs even have sales as part of their commerce curriculum. So I, I just think that people maybe fall into sales as a default role and they realize they have a bit of a knack for it and they do what is necessary to come close to, because you know only 50% of sellers in 2017 globally hit sales quota attainment. So they come as close as they can to sales quota, but they don't sit there every day and think about how do I become the very best in the world? No different than a like a doctor has to, right? But for whatever reason, a seller just kind of like, oh, I'll just go through the motions. You know, I'll get a deal done. If I don't, I'll sandbag it for next month. Like, I, I, I and I won't, I won't listen to a book every week. Listen to podcasts. You know, just read and polish until I am. I can sit in any boardroom and understand exactly what is best in class. That just doesn't happen for most sellers. Which is so interesting because sales is one of the few professions where um, you have a direct impact on, you know, not only your success but you know financially what you make. Uh, I mean, assuming that you're on a commission basis. So it's so interesting that like of all the crafts that you wouldn't want to hone that craft and you wouldn't want to be the best because um, you know you can really elevate your status within the company and and you know get towards financial freedom with that. Yeah, I mean, even. Um even a mediocre, and maybe it's because of the compensation models, but even a mediocre seller at a high growth, you know, enterprise level technology company, as an example, makes as much as a doctor here in Canada, right? So you have to like to, to do, to make $250,000 a year as a um, enterprise sales rep, your base salary, let's say is 125, 150,000. Then, you know, you do a couple great deals a year, you get that one lucky customer, you blow out your number, you get a couple hundred thousand in commission. You got to realize how the most of the world isn't making that same salary. And, and really, you didn't have to work that hard to get that deal done. So, but to be, to be world class, to, to be the half a million or million dollar seller, that requires you to be really polishing yeah, stuff. Yeah, I 100% agree and you can you can have maybe that quarter where you get a million and you know things fall into place but over the long term it's it's honing the craft. And so it's it sounds though I I actually read a, a post of yours from a few weeks back where you were talking about 
some of the first steps that you took in building your personal brand online and you were talking about you know that you would give away free tips you would make videos about you know after you leave a conference you would try to connect with influencers so i'd love to hear if we maybe take it back to when you were on that line between being in the trenches in sales and then getting into the entrepreneurial journey like why you made that shift was it because you were just killing it and you saw this is a big hole in the market or how did that first start yeah no i wish i had that foresight i i was nowhere near smart enough for that so basically long of the short was i had started a consulting firm to help people with inside sales best practices and 18 months later i was going bankrupt because i i didn't build a sustainable sales pipeline i had zero online brand so imagine a decision maker, I'm sitting in their boardroom talking about, uh, at that time, there was a topic called sales 2.0, which was basically the, the evolution of technology being part of the seller stack. You know, the, and this is 2010, right? Where marketing automation and lead lander and, you know, these kind of basic things were, were coming into the fold. So long of the short, I have no money. Uh, I have very few customers and then I have a bomb dropped on me where a customer got caught with fraud and embezzlement. They owed me 35,000 US dollars. I have no money. I have to kind of start from scratch. There's a much longer story to it, but I'll kind of fast forward it. So long of the, now I'm sitting here in 2011 with no money, no job. My wife's supporting us and I'm sitting there and I don't even think I, I planned to evolve. I, you basically had two paths in life. Path A was to continue doing what I was doing, which clearly wasn't working, or, or I could go back and find a sales job, or I can make this entrepreneurial journey work and I will stick it out and I have to find a new way. And over the course of six months, I would sit in our spare bedroom and it'd be three in the morning. I can't sleep. I can't eat. And I would have my laptop open. And for whatever reason, I would just be staring at it at three in the morning and I had LinkedIn open. And in 2011, the word social selling hadn't been invented yet. There was no online courses on social selling. Nobody knew that you could monitor, you could leverage this tool to book meetings and drive business. But I would just sit and rack my brain and think, okay, I'm great with the phone. I'm great with email. I, you know, I, I, from a business development standpoint, that's definitely been my strength as a seller. I'm a, I'm a hunter by nature. And so I would look at LinkedIn and think, okay, I, you know, I could see all these people on here, what if I tried this? And I, night after night, I would discover these back doors, these tips, these hacks. And along the short, I would start booking meetings for myself. And then I would show other people what I was doing, other companies. And they were far more interested in that than my actual services that I had for my consulting firm. And a light bulb went off. And basically, one of the very first things that I developed was this simple concept that we now teach six years later, 100,000 sellers, I've been using and it is called the sphere of influence and the sphere of influence is the simplest account-based sales development strategy uh, from a from a structure standpoint once you understand it it dramatically changes the way that you select plan and engage customers and uh, and so basically here was and then I'll, I'll help you understand all the other branding things that I did to kind of start my business and kickstart my brand but essentially, from an account-based sales development strategy, one of the biggest challenges that a seller has is they begin, whether they're a geographic-based seller, a vertical-based seller, or they've been assigned strategic accounts, they typically focus their time and attention on accounts based on wallet share. 
So if I was assigned in the state of Ohio, what typically happens is a seller will um, develop a list of what are the largest manufacturers in Ohio, and they'll call A through Z, you know, top to bottom. The challenge with that is the velocity, the time it takes to win that deal, and as well the uh, probability of close because everybody else is calling into that account is very low. So what I recognized, and I, I wish I could almost remember how I self-discovered this, was people buy from people. And people buy from stories that are within one degree of separation of their own lives. And so I took a moment and I, I would plot a customer of ours on a sheet of paper and think of it as the center of the universe. And I would draw a circle around that customer. And I would think, who actually cares about the story of that customer? And using tools like LinkedIn, I recognize that within the sphere of influence of every customer and advocate that I sign, there are companies like those that have left my customers that moved on to logos I don't have, job change alerts. It's a trigger. There are the social relationships within what's called social proximity of every champion, decision maker, and influencer that I work with as a customer. They have three to five companies that if you went into their social networks, they're highly connected to because their sister works there, their best friend works there, they used to work there. And so everybody has this connectivity. And if you learn how to map it, it then allows you to decide, where am I going to spend my time? Am I going to spend my time trying to win you know, Walmart? Or am I going to try to spend my time winning this particular account, which might be a little bit mid-market, but... Clearly, I can see my path in the door here because it's, you know, I've, I see three people that can help me get in there. And that sphere of influence helped me first win four market research companies within 90 days. And then from there, I won three relocation companies because it was all interrelated stories I was telling to each other. And then, you know, I, I won Thomson Reuters and Thomson Reuters got us Oracle and Oracle got us Tibco and Tibco got us Intel. And it was just, it was this spider web of people. That, that helped. And so I know that was a long story, but this simple fundamental account selection process using the sphere of influence changed my life. And of course, from account-based sellers, we, we've shown them and it dramatically changes the way that they spend their time in select accounts. That's, it's so cool. Um, and I mentioned this on, on LinkedIn and, and just for the listeners, like, you know, when I, I've been in, in sales post-grad for about three years. And after my first year, I moved out to San Francisco from Boston. And my new boss gave me, actually, he wasn't my boss at the time, but he had read your book, Social Selling Mastery. And he gave me the book because I wanted to, you know, I saw it as a big channel um, as someone that, you know, when I'm, you know, I'm 24 right now, I look like I'm 16. Like I, I wanted to establish some credibility when I'm going into these rooms with people 20, 30 years my senior with a lot more experience and and try to build credibility, whether I'm on the phone and they look me up or we just have a meeting. And, you know, learning from that and the sphere of influence is huge and reference selling. And it's and for people that aren't in sales, like it impacts you can use this for any part of your life. You know, if you want to if you're looking to get a job, if you're looking to, you know, make friends, if you're looking to get funding for your company, if you're you no know, no matter what, it's all sale. I 100% agree with you, and I've used it to build my board of advisors for my business. We'd we'd had explored raising capital. All the things you just mentioned, I've used it above and beyond acquiring net new logos. I've used it for growing my business in a variety of different ways. 
So I use a, an analogy uh, for anybody that have you ever had a chance to uh, when you finished school, did you get a chance to like backpack Europe or anything like that? I did not. Okay, so the analogy I use, I've spent most of my 20s and 30s traveling around the world, and I still do for work, I guess. But long of the short is for anybody that's ever been a traveler, what happens is when you've been away from home, especially in your early 20s, you've been away from home now, it's been a couple months. You start missing home a little bit. Uh, as a Canadian or an American, you'll be in wherever. You're in Budapest, you're in Rome, and you, you just miss home cooking. You miss people speaking about baseball, like just – home and you'll always rock up into a bar and a, a you know an expat bar just so you can hear that north american accent and talk to people like-minded and it happened in you know i traveled in latin america and asia and and when i when i would get there you just felt home and you could have relatable conversations and the same concept is when you can find those inner relations between yourself and a buyer that are human, you know, places you've traveled, schools you went to, people you know, things that you like to collect or hobbies. That means the world to people. That's what people remember. So you leave the meeting, they remember 10% of what you said about your product or service. They remember 90% about the story where you and the buyer both have been to Paris, you know, you, you put a lock on the bridge and you told the story. Th th those are the stories people remember. You know, at my company, you know, we work on an account-based model and, you know, I'll have a company that I, I work with and, you know, then I'll change territories or something or or the buyer will, buyer will land at a new company and they'll, they'll reach out and say, hey, you know, can we work together at my new company? And they won't even remember the details of what the program we worked on or what they bought, but they'll just remember that like we had a really good relationship and like we enjoyed working together. And you know the programs need to work and you need to drive results. That's that's one hundred percent part of it. But you need to build that human connection um, in any form of sales, or else you're you're bound to lose. Correct. Fully agree. I, I crowdsourced some questions on LinkedIn. I want to get to that in a second, but I do want to ask just because my brain is so curious about this. I want to take it back to what you were talking about maybe 10 minutes ago when you're in 2011, you're in your spare room, you're looking at that laptop at three in the morning and you have a few options of like, you know, you're either going to evolve the business or you need to get a sales job or, you know, I don't know what the third option is, but what, how close were you to calling it quits and like what? made you keep pushing forward despite that you know all all or most of the odds were against you at that point a great question and any entrepreneur that tells you they've never considered quitting is just a fat liar just a liar because i'm telling you know there's a great quote um so in canada we have something called the dragon's den which actually two people from dragon's den became Shark's Tank, uh, Robert Herjavec and Kevin O'Leary. So one of the panelists on Dragon's Den, uh, her name's Arlene Dickinson, and she had this quote, and it was, if somebody had told me how hard it was to make our first million dollars before I started the company, there is absolutely no way I would have started the company. And it's so true <laughs> because I honestly thought, <laughs> and when you write, if you read like my first business plans, oh, we're going to hit a million bucks in, you know, a year and a half. It was, it took us three years. And I, if I had a choice between being punched in the face or going through what I went through, I would have happily taken a Mike Tyson's punch to the face. Um, 
it it is tough slugging. It is hard because you've never felt fear. You've never felt fear like having un, unable to pay a, unable to pay your bills, right? Uh, and at that time, I was 31 years old. Okay, so you know, uh, 31, yeah, 31 years old at the time, uh, turning 32. By that time, your friends are making six figures. They're getting married. They have houses. So you have social pressures alongside business pressures. You, you personally start feeling like a failure, and then society starts showing you clearly when everybody else is driving fancy cars and eating nice dinners that you're a failure. But um, what what I always brought it back to was when I was a kid. So I've been an entrepreneur. I've only been an employee for three years of my total life. I've since I was 16 years old. I have started. I've incorporated like seven businesses. Six of them have failed. But I I you know I delivered papers. I washed cars. I ran a landscaping business in both high school and university. And you know, actually, the thing that I play back as to why I didn't quit, I had the worst job in human history, which is so hard that all I have to do is think back to that time when I think, well, it's not as bad as this. Uh, I tree planted for two summers in northern Canada. And tree planting in northern Canada where the bugs are the size of beavers, you just, um, yeah, like if you can survive a summer in a tent in the middle of northern Canada, uh, and not showering for three months, then I can handle this. I just, I, to me, the option of going back, I, I would do everything I could to scrape that out of my brain to say that is not an option. I will do whatever it takes. I will, I will continue to eat ramen noodles, whatever it. I just, uh, but what I did was I needed to find a very quick way to accelerate. And so, of course, the sphere of influence was one of them. But the second thing that I did was I recognized that I had a database of next to nothing. At that time, I had a few hundred LinkedIn connections. I wasn't on Twitter. Uh, I had no email database. I didn't know where to start. But I recognized that there were those that already were in positions that I wanted to be in. And so I mapped those people out. I, I literally built the list of the top 50 you know, sales influencers in the world. Those were people like Jill Conrath and Trish Bertuzzi and Ken Krogh and these sort of people. And I made it a mission that I would not only get on their radar, but I would be able to do joint content marketing strategies with them one day in the future. And so that it's kind of like the movie uh, There Will Be Blood. Well, Daniel Day-Lewis puts the straw, the milkshake in, in the milkshake. And he said, I'm going to drink, drink from your milkshake. The concept was... Ken Krogh is a database of 2.5 million sellers and sales leaders at InsideSales.com. Jill Conrath has an email database of a couple hundred thousand. Trish Bertuzzi at the Bridge Group, a couple hundred thousand. So I mapped all these people out. And what I started doing was, at first, I would like, comment, share their content. I would curate their information and put my own spin on it. Then I would add value into their posts. Then I would write blogs about uh, market best practices and talk about them as key influencers. Well, what happens, it doesn't take very long. They start noticing their name being mentioned on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. And they notice there's this guy in Canada writing about them. And so what ended up happening was, you know, they start following me as well. And 
you know, very much like what you're doing with your podcast. You get, I got lumped into their group so that when people were following Ken Krogh, they noticed that I somehow seemed like I was part of his club. And then Ken asked me in 2012 to write a joint ebook with InsideSales.com. I barely had a company. To write a joint comp- uh, ebook with InsideSales.com on the top 42 LinkedIn tips. Well, that ebook is the most viral ebook that InsideSales.com ever had. And so it had hundreds of thousands of downloads. Well, um, what it did is drove an immense amount of traffic to both my pro- profile, my company's profile. People started connecting with me. And I just kept doing this over and over and over again, like a snowball rolling down a hill. To then I woke up and people were calling inbound rather than me having That's, to call outbound. Jamie, you got me fired up right now. It's six thirty in the morning. I'm rocking push-ups in the in the studio right now, man. This is awesome. <laughs> and and it's it's so true. I mean, it's you mentioned you know kind of alluded to that's what I'm doing with the podcast. And you're so right. It's like you know a year ago or nine months ago, I, I started looking at my network and saying like, you know, I have a decent you know network at you know the people I know at my company, but I don't I don't know great sales leaders or entrepreneurs or other people outside the company. So like, all right, well, let's go, uh, you know, try to tap their brain for 30 minutes, you know, call it a podcast and, and, and see how you can connect with the Jamie Shanks of the world and, you know, Max Altschuler and, you know, Jordan Burroughs, the Olympic gold medalist and all these, all this stuff. So, um, but it's about, I think a, a key point that you're missing out on or not that you're missing out on. Um, uh, but I, I just want to highlight is that you were adding so much value to the marketplace. It wasn't just like you saw Ken Krogh was a sales influencer and you said, hey, hey, uh, Ken, you know, I like sales too. Let's talk for 15 minutes. I'll buy you a coffee. It was putting in the work, adding value for over time into the marketplace, and then good things started to happen because you were taking the actions. And so what you just said co- kind of correlates back to your original question and on why are other sellers not doing this? It's because it's hard and because it's a long game and it's a long ball that, you know, and it's very much the Gary Vaynerchuk kind of strategy that having the foresight to recognize that the time I put in today, while it sucks, while the leads aren't pouring in this week, that I will wake up one to five years from now in a much better position than I am today. And you know what? And, and as an entrepreneur, I've been doing now this for six years. I've grown a multi-million dollar business. But even I fall down still today, and I recognized a year ago that I had become laxed on this very same sales play that you and I are talking about right now. And I, I started to talk to my own peers in my industry and trying to form a CEO forum, a mastermind group of all the CEOs of the top training companies, of, of the emerging top training companies in the world. And we're trying to formulate a mastermind, get 10 of us together talking about market best practices in a form of co-opetition uh, to improve ourselves. Uh, so that, that journey will never, it should never end. You're always trying to find others that can, um, that, that can help you and benefit you and they're smarter than you. Um, and I've kind of woken up recently and realized, okay, well, I, I hit a bit of a plateau. I'm not learning. I'm not learning social and digital things from other people. I need to learn how to be a better CEO. So I'm going to meet CEOs who've already done it, but I haven't. And I'm going to put myself in their mastermind. Yeah, that's that's huge. And the last thing, because I do want to get to these questions from, from the audience, but the last thing I'll say on that is, you know, as a salesperson, you're always looking for, 
you know, how do I hit my quota this month or this quarter or this year? And when I, uh, I often talk to some of the, our new hires, like a BDR about social selling and how to do it. And like, you know, the first thing I say is like, you know, it's a long, it's a long game. Um, and that's what, you know, anything I've ever heard from people that are successful at it. It's like, you're not doing this to make a sale today. You're doing this, you know, for yourself one, three, five years down the road. So it's just an important point. But on that note, you know, I want to spend the last five, 10 minutes here uh, hitting some of these questions. And, you know, the first thing that I want to get to is really just the practicality of, of social selling and building your, building your brand. Like, you know, the question specifically is like, how do you work that, that process into your workflow and scheduling out your day, whether you're a sales rep, whether you're a sales leader, you know, how do you, how do you build that into your busy schedule? Yeah, so I'll start it at the leadership level, and and I, and I know you'll want to rapid fire these questions, so I'll keep them succinct. Basically, as a leader, the most important thing is you reverse engineer sales objectives down to activities that highly influence sales objectives, and those are the sales plays that you hammer over and over again. You are not going to be social for social sake. So what you do is you develop these sales plays, and our methodology um, usually gets interweaved into our customers' uh, current sales process or go to market and we call it feed finding engaging educating and developing the goal as now as the seller so imagine you have a sales play whether it's an absd strategy or an open account strategy uh, to run feed now as the seller you're executing feed in under 30 minutes a day if you're spending more than 30 minutes a day using social and digital then you're detracting from all the other core things you need to do such as meeting customers and proposals and so forth. So under 30 minutes a day, you're able to, uh, whether you're concentrating on finding a group of accounts or finding a certain buyer within one account, then you're engaging them with either a one-to-many strategy or a one-to-one, such as you know making them a personal video or sharing a LinkedIn point drive so you can map the buying committee based on their engagement. Then you're educating them on what's going on on implementation best practices after signature for the first 90 days. And then you're developing your social network around that customer um, so that you're not single threaded, you're multi-threaded. You're doing that all in rapid fire between nine and 10 in the morning, and then you have the rest of your day. And it's a compounding effect. You just keep doing this over and over and over. And where sellers fall down, they spend way too much putting around on Twitter when they're not laser focused on what do I do to better serve that customer right now? Yep. Love it. Love it. I would agree with, with all that. You, you, you hammer it down to 30 minutes a day. You know the channels that you want to go on, which if you're in B2B is likely LinkedIn and Twitter. How do you balance the, the professional versus like having a genuine human interaction, showing some personal things. And I think that's especially true for Twitter or if you're on other platforms like Instagram or something. But like, let's say you're on Twitter and, you know, you are a huge, uh, you know, Boston Celtics fan like I am. Like, how do I use that but also stay professional in that same channel? Yeah, and there's a, a great framework that's been circulating in the social world called the 411. The 411 is simple. Let's say I was willing to share six insights or six pieces of content over a course of a week. And as you get stronger at this, that might be over the course of two days, you know, as you ramp up content sharing. But the concept is this four pieces of insights are going to be curated market best practices, 
implementation best practices, pitfalls and challenges. They are not they're not about your company. They are not about what you do. They're about how you better serve your customer. Okay, so they're like a Harvard Business Review article. Then one article interlaced into that is talking about how your company solves challenges. It might be talking about an upcoming event you're doing or a webinar or podcast or come to our booth for free cookies, you know, that kind of stuff. And then the other one is you're interlacing something that's human. You're volunteering at an event. You're running the Cure for Cancer 5K next weekend. Um, yourself with a customer at the Celtics game because people buy from people and they want to see that you're not a robot. And, and so if you adhere to that 411, it's a, gr it's a good start to a blend of personal and professional. Uh, and then you can choose to alter that mix. You know, I've heard some people say 50, 25, 25, and there's all these kind of models, but I highly recommend that a little bit of personal is interweaved in, but personal that shows that you care about the customer shows that you care about life. And it's not just photos of your dinner plate, something a little more valuable. Yeah. And I think, you know, and shout out to Kevin Garcia and Ryan Warner for those, those questions there. And Andy Matthews on the first one. But um, I think another piece to that too, that should go without saying, but I'll say it anyways, like if you're actually reading and putting in the effort to learn more about the market and learn more about what, like read the publications that your customers read, you know, then it, it becomes so much easier because, you know, you're in the flow of that, you're accumulating knowledge, and then you can just pass that forth. Um, if you're not actually learning and not actually reading, it, it probably becomes a lot tougher. So another one here is, let's take it back to if you were a college student or if you're in university and you're interested in sales, how would you prepare yourself today at, say, you're 21 years old to get ready for a sales career? Great question. I haven't had that question uh, in a long time, so I almost have to think about it. Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you a very funny about my journey. I had no intent to be a seller. My dream since grade nine uh, was to be a stockbroker. And I became a stock. So if you actually look at my LinkedIn profile, I worked at Bank of Montreal, Nesbitt Burns. So grade nine, I did my job shadow days, want to be a stockbroker. Literally, I would come into university. I was dressed in, I, at that time, you know, I looked, like I was a million dollars. I had the suspenders and the tie and the whole bit, right? I, I was a <laughs> stockbroker. And so what I did was uh, in first year university, I volunteered at the bank two days a week while doing university. And then they gave me a summer interim job. And then eventually by my third year university, they actually hired me full time. And I did my university at nights and weekends while living with eight guys in a university dorm kind of thing. So I was convinced I was going to be a stockbroker and I discovered that stockbrokers were actually sellers, not people who you know, pontificated the stock market. And I was a little bit, oh, no, I, I don't want to be a seller. And then I, the way I discovered I could be a seller was in my third or fourth year, I was bombing a bunch of classes and I needed to keep my grades up to a certain level or they were going to kick me out of a certain level at the commerce program. And so I turned to my roommate, you know, one of my best friends, Travis, and I said, I'm going to go to each one of these professors and I'm going to sell them on giving me a B. And I, and I literally was failing all of these classes. And he said, there is no way possible you could convince five different professors in five different classes to give you a B. You have an E in every one of them. I put on a brown suit. 
I had BMO Nesbitt Burns cards, uh, like you know, business cards, and I booked a meeting with each one of them. And one by one, I sold them on why this was the reason you don't want to stunt my career. I'm on a great trajectory. Your class is the difference. Give me a B. I promise that I'll, I'll, I'll make it up to you later in life. And I got to be in all five of those wow. classes. And, and so Travis told this story uh, as a wedding speech. He said, I, I couldn't even believe he did it. Um, and I and it created a bit of confidence. I was like, wow, maybe I can actually be a seller. Um, so to answer your question, I don't, what can a, what can a person do? You know, one thing is get some, get some experience like I did, like volunteer uh, and volunteer in some hard sales jobs, door to door. If you want to learn hard, go door to door. If you really want to see what rejection is all about, uh, try something like that. And that will give you a sense or, or volunteer at a tech company, see what it's like to actually sit next to a BDR, SDR, inside sales and get it from an experiential side, just understand what it's like uh, rather than just applying when you graduate and hope you like it. Uh, I, I use that opportunity to map out, can I be a stockbroker? And it turns out I didn't really enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I think that's a key piece too. Like if you're going, what I would say is if you're going for you know, an internship or something like there's a lot of, you can get a sales internship where it's mostly, you know, you're doing work in Excel or you're building PowerPoints or something like what I did was, and it, it just was more circumstantial that one summer in college, I sold Cutco knives where you're going into people's homes and you're selling knives and you're doing, you're cutting the rope and all that stuff. And it's a tough gig, but I freaking loved it. And from that point on, like I knew I was going into sales and, and I, and I think that that mentally gave me a head start when I, I graduated and started my sales career because I already knew that was my path. Um, whereas like we're saying 30 minutes ago, a lot of times people get into sales because without knowing if they like it. And a lot of times, you know, you, you may quit that uh, in the first year or two, just because it's not right for you. So I'd say getting real experience, getting something that's tough, you're going to get a lot of no's. And if you can get through that, you're going to be all set. And so I think that's, that's how I'd respond to that too. So Jamie, you've been super generous with your time. This has been awesome for anyone that is in sales, anyone that's in leadership, entrepreneur, um, or just building their personal brand for, for again, uh, down the road, because you never know what's going to happen. Uh, you know, the last question I got for you is if you have any other words of wisdom to those millennials out there that are, you know, trying to get their personal development going, um, any last words? And then where can we find you, the social selling master on social media? So my words of wisdom will be from the song I was listening to in the shower today. Uh, and I think it's one of the, the, the challenges or the perceived challenges that the millennial generation has that my Gen X generation uh, doesn't understand why it, <laughs> they're so challenged with it. And it's a Rolling Stone song and it is time is on my side. If you're a millennial, yeah, I know that was bad saying. I love this story. That's awesome. (laughs) If you are a millennial, time is on your side. Guess what? Going from SDR to vice president isn't happening in nine months, right? Put in the time because you have so much business acumen. And here's an interesting, uh, just from a digital selling standpoint, Justin Schreiber, the chief marketing officer, they did a study on who 
was performing the best as a social seller. It turned out that those over the age of 40 outperformed those under the age of 40 on contraire to what a lot of sales enablement leaders think. They'll always say, oh, my older sellers, they'll never get this. But what an older seller has is number one, many times classically trained, business acumen because they've been in enough boardrooms and they have a strong network. They just didn't know how to digitize it. Whereas the millennial is strong with the digital tools but has yet to refine their business acumen and has yet to develop the relationships necessary. You know, and, and yesterday we were at a large telecom, we launched a program at a, a large telecom company in Washington, DC. And a, a, one of my teammates, Mike, he's 27, 28. You know, he was in the boardroom with me for seven hours. We did business planning as we do with every customer. We reverse engineer their sales objectives into digital sales plays for our coaching programs. And he recognized the only way I'm ever going to be able to do this is I just have to put in the time. I'm going to have to log a hundred boardrooms to be able to have seen enough experiences to go, wow, I can pull an idea from Microsoft and Intel and these ideas together to help the customer. And so my biggest advice, you cannot fast forward business acumen. It is going to come through experience. Just let it come. <laughs> so. Uh, that, that, there, there you go. There's my advice. Love it. That's, yeah, I think that's something that, you know, I certainly need to hear. Everyone needs to hear. Um, and where can we find you on social media? Yeah. So connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, easily the, the most logical place for me. Uh, I'm also a big Instagram user. Uh, so you connect with me on Instagram, uh, but definitely, uh, Jamie, you know, Jamie Shanks, you'll see CEO of Sales for Life on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, Jamie, thanks so much for the time. Um, we even got a, a little singing in there, which I don't think we've, I've had singing yet on the show. So that was awesome. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to that. Three quick takeaways from my interview with Jamie Shanks. Number one, you have to treat sales or anything as a vocation. It's not just a career. It's not just a job. You need to work on the craft, polish the stone, find ways to get better, whether that's finding a mentor, reading a book, listening to a podcast. I would recommend more millennial momentum if I were you. Um, but there's a lot that you can do out there to get better. 1% better every day is what we say around here. Number two, people remember only 10% of your pitch, but 90% of the stories and the connections that you make throughout the meeting. So, Although a deck is important, although the products are important, you need to remember that it's all about making connections with people. Whether you're in business, whether you're trying to make a friend, whether you're trying to get funding, no matter what it is. And number three is words of wisdom. Singing the Rolling Stones. Time is on your side, especially with social sales or sales or business or life. You have to play the long game. It's not all instant gratification. Those that can delay their gratification the most will end up being the most successful. So please check out Jamie's book, Social Selling Mastery. Check out uh, Sales for Life. Check him out on social media. Thanks so much to Jamie. Thanks so much to you for listening. I hope you're having a great week. And let's get after it. I'll be back with another one soon. Out.